Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. Today, we're interviewing Joseph Featherstone with Teddy Von Pingle as our interpreter. Big thank you for joining us today. For those that are listening to this interview, just so you know, Teddy is interpreting for Joseph, so when she says I or me or speaks in first person, she's speaking for Joseph while he tells his story as he signs. Okay, let's jump in, my friends. Joseph, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, I'm Joseph Featherstone, and I was born in Utah, raised in Utah, born deaf. My parents both have some of a genetic marker that together in combination produced children that were deaf. I come from a family of six boys. I'm number two of the six. And for our family, we have three deaf brothers and three hearing brothers. So we're split down the middle. So when I say hearing, obviously it means somebody who can hear. That's what we call it, hearing versus deaf. Yeah. I was born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I went on an LDS mission to New York City right around 2003 to 2005. And I graduated from BYU with a recreational therapy degree. And then I went and got my master's degree at the University of North Florida, the same program as Teddy, the voice that you can hear. (laughs) Wow. We did. We went to school together. We were in the same cohort. It was the best cohort ever. (laughs) Nice. That's how you guys met? Well, yes and no. We worked together before that in the same company, and then we started grad school together and took it from there. We've been friends for quite a while. Cool. Okay. So that's who I am. I'm married. I have two children, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. Beautiful children, a boy and a girl. Both can hear. And my oldest son knows sign language. My daughter is still kind of learning. She uses her brother to interpret for her between us, so... Uh, oh, wow. she's not quite there yet, but my wife can hear as well. And we met through work and yeah, that's me. Wonderful. Thank you for that. So nice to meet you. This is fun. <laughs> okay. So we've been trying to learn more about the deaf community and we've learned that there's a culture of deafness. We've seen that it's not often identified as a disability that it's more a culture or a language. We're wondering if you agree with that and your thoughts on is deafness a disability? That is a great question. We do consider ourselves culturally and linguistically a community. And from an audiological standpoint, they call us disabled because our ears are not working. But that's an audiological and physiological perspective, while at the same time we see and we have developed a language of our own that's visual that allows us to communicate. And it became a culture because we had to learn how to survive together as people who share that commonality. We have our own jokes. We have stories. We have things that are associated with our experience compared to people that can hear. For example, our jokes are very visual. I've learned about the deaf community when I was about 17 years old. That was my first exposure. I mean, I knew about it. But I hadn't really been involved, you know, from the time that I was born until I was 17. But I was raised um, more learning to speech read, what they call an oral program. I learned how to talk. I learned how to read lips. I learned how to use hearing aids. 
that was the focus of all of my training so that I could get along in a hearing world. Mm. And I was taught that deaf people weren't smart, that they weren't equal to, Mm. you know, but I had to overcome that. I had to work to be better than that experience by talking and by being able to speak. That was how I would make it into the hearing world. But when I met this deaf person at the age of 17, I found this person to be smart, funny, all the things that I didn't think deaf people could be. And it caused a cognitive dissonance for me. Mm. I had always thought something different. So it was a mind shift. And then I went on a mission and I was called to the sign language mission program. And from there, it's the rest of my life. I love the deaf community and culture. And it's just so simple for me to be a part of conversations. In the past, I would always have to try to be, you know, so hypervigilant about trying to catch every syllable and every word and being a part of things once I was in the deaf community. It's a sign language. It was like I was never left out of anything. I could look and see any conversation happening in the room. I could look on the other side of the room and see another conversation and know immediately what they were talking about, football here, basketball there, whatever the case may be. And so I was fully included. Heck yeah. We love that. It's such a big deal to find a community of people that are like you. And even uh, disability, just like knowing someone in a wheelchair for me, like that was huge. I didn't know anyone in a wheelchair until I was like, in high school, really, like, it's such a big deal. I'm so glad you found that. Um, what, in your opinion, should hearing people know about deaf culture? Well, we don't like to be called hearing impaired, for starters. <laughs> we like to be called deaf, so just say what it is. Mm-hmm. And then we're just like everyone else. We just use a different language. It's as simple as that. We have some cultural differences, some cultural norms, but we're still human beings. We have the same values. We have relationships. We want to be included. We want to feel loved. We want to be seen. Anything that any other person would want. And I'm sure it's, you know, you're agreeing with me. You're shaking your head. So I know that you understand what that feels like. I think also as far as communication with deaf people, just ask us what we need. I mean, we're open to it. This is not our first time doing this. So, you know, people can ask, oh, you have an accent? I'm like, yeah, it's because I'm deaf and I don't hear things the way that everybody does. And so just ask me and we'll proceed with conversation. Just at least start somewhere. Uh, Okay. So to clarify, you said hearing impairment is not correct. A good way to refer to people, but is hard of hearing. Okay. Versus calling someone deaf. That's okay. Right? Yes. Yes. Hard of hearing would be okay. Let me explain a little bit about those because there are people who can actually hear some and are considered more hard of hearing whatever they determine is their own identification. If they do or don't use sign language, a lot of it has to do with what community they identify with. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about hard of hearing, you're kind of prioritizing the hearing aspect. When you look at deaf, we're people who use a different language and we have our unique culture. So I would say, you know, I'm deaf, but I'm culturally deaf. Hard of hearing individuals tend to be part of the mainstream culture for those that can hear if that helps make that differentiation. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. You kind of went into this, but if you wouldn't mind sharing a little more detail, what was your experience like as a deaf child growing up in the church? Were you able to have accommodations that you needed? Were you able to still feel included? Great question. Oh. Okay, let's get real here. <laughs> real talk. Yes. 
I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, there's so much that I'm trying to encapsulate in this short time. There are deaf wards. We do have deaf wards across the church and branches all over the United States, but they're very small. In Utah, they're bigger because we have a larger population here in Utah. But like, if, I think there's one in Florida, maybe one in New York, kind of scattered around the United States. Here in Utah, I grew up going to the ward that my family was assigned to, not the deaf ward. So just a typical LDS ward. And I didn't have any interpreters. So my mom and there were a few neighbors that had learned some signs, sign language, and they would interpret for me and my other brothers as well. We were given a sign language interpreter all through my mom, through my dad and any neighbors that were willing to volunteer to do that. The older that I got, some of my friends who learned sign would pitch in here and there to interpret for classes. I do remember being a deacon and going to deacon's quorum and one of my friends would interpret. And that was, I'm very fortunate that I had that, that type of support because I know that there are many wards that don't provide that type of accessibility for deaf members. And one of the things that sticks out to me is that I stayed in one ward my entire life. So that meant people knew who we were. People knew me. We, we were there. We were visible. We've been there from birth. So nowadays it would be more likely that I could move, stay somewhere for a few years, move again, move again. But I don't know that I would have that ability to kind of integrate because of the lack of support. So I think I'm a unique situation in some ways. If you ask some of my friends who are also deaf that same question, they would probably have a very different experience. Like they hate going to church because they don't know what's going on. They just sit there in silence. It's boring. They just show up to worship and really don't get any of the, you know, extra information. So I consider myself fortunate in that regard. And as far as mutual or young men's, young women's, that was a tough spot. Yeah. You know, like firesides, devotionals. If I could find an interpreter, great. But for the most part, it was more of like, shoot, you know, I'm going to have to wait until they publish the transcript and I'll read it at that time. Uh, Or read it in one of the, the church magazines, like the Enzyme or the New Era. So when you did find an interpreter for firesides, for example, Did you have them just like sitting next to you on the pew or would they go up front and be next to the speaker? Like, did you feel like there was a lot of attention of other people watching you? Oh, there's always attention on the interpreters, especially in church things. Mm -hmm. That's typical experience. Anywhere an interpreter shows up, people are always like, oh, gosh, sign language is so beautiful. And (laughs) they get all the attention. (laughs) Yeah, that's the honest truth. That's how the experience goes. And, you know, that aside, it didn't bother me that much as far as placement, you know, if the interpreter was in the front, but it was more of like, my, you know, is my mom available? Is my neighbor available? Is, you know, my mom had six children to raise, six boys. Yeah. So she was always busy. And sometimes she couldn't in church, you know, somebody wasn't always guaranteed to show up. But with mutual, with the older kids and with younger kids at home, my mom couldn't leave them. So it was a conflict for her as well. And it just wasn't a fully accessible experience for me. Like scout camp was the hardest. Wow. So there's just a few examples. And I can lip read and get along and get by, but one-on-one. So if you get a whole crowd of people together, people talking over each other at the same time, imagine a camp fireside where everybody's in the dark and they're sitting around the fire and no one's interpreting. And I would just fall asleep because there's nothing going on. You know, some of the best experiences would happen at those dark 
campfire sites, but I'd be in bed because for me to be there, I wouldn't be able to see anybody anyways. How did you cope with that feeling that you were missing out on these other experiences? Like, how did you work through that emotionally at the time? Not very well, to be honest. So let me share something with you. It's a story of something that was very personal to me, but I feel like I can share it with you. And I think it's because of this experience that I was able to cope with anything else. And if it weren't for that experience, I don't know that I would have ever been able to get through harder things in my life. Where do I begin? Okay, I think when I was around 16, I always had questions about why me? You know, why, why am I deaf? You know, why did God give me that burden or blessing or whatever you want to call it? It didn't seem fair. I felt like I was always left out. I was not involved. I was angry, you know, a little bit angry at God. Like, why me? I still believed in him. I still believed that there was a God. I was still involved and believed in everything in the church, but it was more a question of why am I here on earth? What is my purpose? And then one day my dad and mom both said, maybe it's time for a patriarchal blessing. So they offered that for me and I thought, well, okay. My dad said he recommended that because it's this one moment in time where you get a direct message from Heavenly Father. Maybe you have questions that were answered there. And as a deaf person, maybe that would be an experience that would benefit your life. You know, I didn't care about what my lineage was. I didn't care about a lot of things that people care about with patriarchal blessings. But for me, it was more about him specifically mentioning my deafness. So I said, sure, dad, let's do it. But he asked me to do my homework to make sure that I was ready, that I was spiritually prepared for getting a patriarchal blessing. So I read my scriptures, you know, things like fasting, every bit of advice he gave me, I took, I went to the bishop, I got my patriarchal recommend, met with the stake president. And then when I was ready to make my point with the patriarch, I found out that he was an audiologist and I knew him well. Wow. So he was somebody, somebody I was already familiar with. Yeah, it was kind of fun to get a patriarchal blessing from him. It took me about a month before I actually received my blessing. And I said, okay, I'm going to read the Book of Mormon. I'm going to do all the things that were told me so that I can be prepared for my patriarchal blessing before I went into the appointment. And I was like, bring it on, bring on the reading. And so I read everything. I worked hard. I think it was about two days before my patriarchal blessing, I started a fast. And the whole time I just kept thinking, why am I deaf? Why am I deaf? I need to know. Please answer. That's the only question I really care about. When I went in to his office for the patriarchal blessing, I sat down and my mom and dad were sitting across from me. And my mom was interpreting and I had another brother there in the room. He put his hands on my head. And I don't remember anything of the blessing itself. But what I do remember was that God gave me a memory, if you will, allowing me to remember something. He allowed me to kind of see beyond the veil to the conversation that he and I might have had before I came to this earth. And the conversation was simply, I remember I said this exact phrase, yes, I'm sure. Heavenly Father saying, are you sure? And I'm saying, yes, I'm sure I want to be deaf. And having that earth experience, because I said, you know, I'm going to have two brothers that are deaf as well. 
and I want to pave the way. I want to go first. And he agreed to that. He said, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you all that you need. I'm going to support them. I'm going to love you. But he wanted me to remember that that was a choice that I made. Wow. When the blessing was over, that's when I looked at my mom again. And she was just saying in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And I remember it was just like I had stepped away for personal revelation. And from that moment on, every time I think about that moment, it changed my life and changed my perspective of being deaf, even though it's hard, even though it comes with many challenges. I do know that there are things about being involved in the church that could be better, you know, as a deaf person, but my testimony is undeniable. It would never be able to be not a part of me because of that experience. So for me, that was a key moment of, and a personal reason why I still strongly support the church. That's an incredible experience. Thank you for opening up and sharing that with us. Um, with the idea of your deafness being connected to your spirituality and your experiences within the gospel, are there any other ties that you see where your testimony is connected with your deafness? I can't really think of anything. I think it's more of, hmm. I think it's just spiritual inspiration when I feel the spirit from something else, when I read the scriptures, you know, when I meet people like my missionary companions and friends, things that just inspire me and fill me with the spirit. When my first baby was born, I remember Heavenly Father saying, you know what, this is my precious child that I'm allowing you to raise. I feel this kind of mantle of fatherhood. So just little glimpses here and there. It's not really connected to my deafness per se, but just being a human and being a person who goes through this earthly experience just like everyone else. And I do have a different way of getting through life, through experiencing the earth life, but, you know, I don't think it's worth shouting, you know, it's not about the noise that I make. It's about who I am as a person. So I feel like, do I have my own quirks? You know, yeah, I don't speak or I don't hear, but overall, I'm just like everyone else. I'm just yeah. like the two of you. Yeah. We like you so much. <laughs> this is incredible. We really appreciate what you're sharing with us. What are your thoughts in general of how deafness is portrayed by the church? Is it portrayed by the church and how? I do feel like we're called hearing impaired. I think we're looking at it as a deficit. And I can't, well, again, I'm not trying to, you know, be negative of the church. It's just my real life experience. Yeah. But I do feel at times that the church tries to encourage people to have charity, to be soft hearted, to love, especially for people with disabilities. They're like, look at me as a project, mm. if that makes sense. And they're like, ta-da, I'm going to help Joseph do this. I'm like, well, slow down. I can help you in some ways. I <laughs> yeah. Let me do what I can for you. I can shovel. I can move things. It's not like you have to help me. So oftentimes I feel like it's overlooked that I can be independent and that I have so much to offer and that I'm fine in all ways and that I can help others. As in the same way that they could help me, but it seems like I get 
looked at like a service project. Mm. And so I feel like at times they're encouraging people to be loving, not really in a negative or positive way, but it comes across as, yeah, as that. As condescending, almost. (laughs) That's it. A little bit. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. Even when I worked for the church, I worked at headquarters for many years and the disability office was always something where it was like, oh, look at Joseph in the department. So cute. Bless your heart. Look at all the work you're doing. Here's some money. That kind of an attitude and whatever I was doing for them. You know, I want to kind of slap them upside the head, but that was my experience. Very condescending. Right. You're like, this is my you know, job. This is you. This is why I'm here. I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah. It's hard because you know that it's like coming from a good place and they're trying to be supportive, but it doesn't come off that way. And it's hard to explain that in a way that's like, you want to respect and be grateful for the kindness, but it is a level of disrespect and that's hard. I agree. Yes, that's it exactly. You know, they look at us like we're children that mm-hmm. were not mature. And, you know, I want to say, no, I'm an adult. You know, sometimes I have to look inside myself and tell myself I'm not a child. I'm an adult. Because of that interaction happening so often, it often affects my own view at times. I'm a functioning adult. I can do anything I want to do. I can provide for my family. I have a family. So that mentality is hard to overcome at times. Did you work in the disability office itself or adjacent to it in the church office somewhere else? I worked in the translation department. Okay. Translating things from English to American Sign Language. And it was the most expensive language because I would translate and then I would be filmed on camera Uh with doing an ASL. So you know, where other translators, they just give them the document and then they go and make the translation for the American Sign Language process. It's a little bit longer because we get the documentation, we do the translation, then we do the filming, and then we're done. So we're an expensive part of the translation department. Okay. So a lot of people have some, you know, disgruntlement about the amount of money that goes towards making accessible videos for the deaf community. And we provide feedback for them. It's, you know, never great. We feel like They said we're too rigid sometimes with the translation. Post-production, Joseph added a little clarification to the part that he just said. He wrote, Our ratings and viewership was never that great, so it was hard to justify. Some feedback we got was that we were too rigid sometimes with the translation. And then I say, well, the scriptures say that they need to be read multiple times for different interpretations. So where does that go in? Where's the balance? Right. Um, Yeah. Like the hearing community can have nuance, but the deaf community can't. Well, we have tried to put in some of those nuances, but Mm -hmm. again, you know, with other languages, I understand from their experience that it's similar, whether it's Spanish or other spoken languages, you know, there are people in Mexico and people in Spain, they don't, speak the language in the same way so there are nuances between the two of them so how did their translators accommodate both populations so that's a challenge that we experience as well within the deaf community in the church wow that just really bothers me when looking at these issues of translation instead of being like okay are we reaching everybody in the way that they can most understand that speaks to their heart the best but instead of asking that 
they're saying, uh, how much is this going to cost? Like, mm, the church has so much money. Like, you can spend it on accessibility. <sighs> so bad. <laughs> I'm so sorry that you went. I, I agree with you. I do agree with you. It's not really as big of a deal. Again, it's just that I feel like, you know, it made me who I am today. That's yeah. part of my journey, part of my experience. Um, it is what it is. But it could have been better and it can be better for people in the future. One thing about the deaf community that I'm sure, you know, here in America has similar problems is that we have such diversity within our own community. So we have highly educated deaf people. We also have people who we call grassroots, more people who are not as educated, but they're still, you know, amazing and wonderful contributors to the church and the community in general. So when we do translations, especially like the Book of Mormon, how do you appeal to both subgroups within the deaf community? So we're trying to match both at the same time when you're talking about scriptural translation. You know, on my mission, I had a similar experience in New York City. I met so many people who were desperate for the gospel, but they couldn't read and write English. Their education level became a barrier to them being able to understand the truths of the gospel. We would give them the Book of Mormon to read, but they would just do their very level best, but just simply couldn't because of the language. So that's been a challenge in translation, especially in the church's translation approach, trying to find a one-size-fits-all that will help everyone understand the scriptures better and gospel topics. But you have a wide range on the spectrum from highly educated to less educated. And I feel strongly that the Book of Mormon is the key to most testimonies and should be the key to our testimony. That makes it a barrier if you can't read the Book of Mormon. That's just a simple thing right there. So translating the Book of Mormon has been a process. Wow. I feel like a lot of these perspectives will shift and change to be more inclusive. As the disability department of the church grows, as maybe we have more disabled people in leadership, it won't be seen as like, oh, an extra thing that we have to do. Oh, we have to include the disabled people. Like, it'll be natural and it'll be Christ-like. Let me know if you agree. I see the church going in that direction, and I hope that it continues progressing that way. I do feel like we are having more and more conversations about it at a bare minimum about inclusivity. I think we are on the right track, but I really hope that it's not just a conversation, that it becomes action, that we take steps to see where we can plant better accommodations and actually do it and not just have it be a nice story and a nice conversation. So there is one thing. Can I mention something really quick about calling? Okay. So I was very fortunate. Remember, I didn't grow up in a deaf ward. I grew up in a regular ward with interpreters. But I did have one stake president. He was very inclusive. He was open to anything. It was almost like he thought anybody could do anything. And so he felt inspired to come to a specific ward looking for a high counselor. And it was my ward, happened to be my ward. He showed up, he was sitting on the stand, and he looked out in the audience. And the person that he was thinking of, he felt, well, this person, and now that's not them. But that was the day that I was happening to give a talk. So I was up on the podium, I gave a talk, and stake president. And the second counselor said, there's your guy. When the meeting was over, they came up to me, the two of them, and said, we need you. And I said, okay, great. But what do I do now? And they weren't sure how to accommodate me. And they said, well, I want you to be a high counselor. 
but we do have some questions. First of all, can you read lips? You know, will you feel left out? How will you feel included? And so they started grilling me on all these questions and I wasn't shy about it. You know, they asked what I needed and I was happy to provide that information. So I talked to them about captioning. Sure, we'll do that. And I became a high counselor, I think, for about a year or so before I moved to another city. But that was probably one of the best times in my life because I felt like for the first time, my deafness didn't prevent me from being called to being a high counselor. They felt the inspiration. They acted on it. And then we made the accommodations. That was a unique first for me. I gave talks. I traveled to wards. I did all the things that you would expect a high councilman to do. And I loved it. It was a fun calling. Sadly, I had to move. But since I've been here, I feel like they've called me to be in young men's. But I struggle because the boys don't speak well anyways. You know how they are. <laughs> They're not looking at me. They're speaking slang. Uh, I mean, I'm lost with their conversations. It's a little bit tough. But actually, I don't have a current calling. I'm hoping to get one. Yeah, I think callings, you know, whatever you want to wrap that up in, but callings can be problematic. How old were you when you became high councilman? Hmm, 31. 31, okay, okay. Because you, you made it sound like it was in the ward that you grew up in, and so I was like, wait, was he oh. 18? <laughs> no, 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 different ward. It was after I was married. I had moved to a different city. And that specific ward just had such great leadership and inspired leadership. It was the most affirming, inclusive. Everything was online. All the information was made accessible. Everyone had the same access, including me. And I loved that part of it. Instead of me having to get the information from a certain talk, waiting for the transcript, yeah. you know, and once they made an announcement. So it was just all simultaneous. I didn't have to have that delay. What do you think made the difference like in that war? Why were they so much more inclusive than other wards? I think it all starts with the stake president. Mm. He's the one who sets the tone. And the stake president in that war, the first day he was the stake president, he asked for everyone to show their budgets to him. So he lined up all the ward budgets and he said, well, it seems like the young women's budget is small compared to how much is dedicated for men and boys program and so he made it equal and wow. fair for all organizations and then he started looking at things like that how he could stop making things biased stop making things unequal and making sure that everybody had an inclusive experience and I think that it started with him I think that's why he was called and then he intentionally called bishops that had a similar vision or mindset and they were inspired by the spirit they followed those promptings into action, especially of inclusivity and fun. They had so much fun. They had one weird rule that I loved. And that rule was the last closing hymn has to be fun and fast, no matter what it is. It couldn't be slow and a funeral. It had to be fast. You know how hymns get sometimes. It's tiring. You're at the end of the program. You really don't care about the closing hymn. So the rule was to make it short and sweet and fast. So uh, that made church a good experience. You ended on a good note, you know, and he enforced it. I love so my, that guy. My hat's off to him. <laughs> I do too. I do too. Loved him so much. Huh. I guess I'm just still thinking about maybe because I see people in leadership positions of the church who 
are not that way. And then you look at that state president who was that way. So I wonder, was it his personality or did he have a background in education or a career that was more inclusive? Uh, how can we make this switch in other people's brains? I agree. I agree. He was unique. I think he was an attorney. I think that was his career. Okay. His house had burned down. He had lost everything in a fire. So maybe that led to his empathy. He had several really rough things happen in his life. So he was very humble. Mm. He was more focused on what is important in the lives of those around him. He had that mindset of people first. People were already the priority. It wasn't about status. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about things he accumulated. It was about the people that he surrounded himself with. And I think his first counselor was inactive for years. He left the church, came back, and was called into that position. So I feel like in many ways that state president just saw the goodness of people. He was able to see what they really were and bring more out of them. And the second counselor to that state president was a really tall guy, six seven. And everybody had to look up to him literally and figuratively. He was full of charm and charisma and happiness, just things that people were drawn to. So the three of them were a wonderful trio. They were a great example of people coming first. Every time we met, we would talk about the people. He would say, who can we help? You know, that's a broken record. We hear that often about praying for people and who needs our support. But he meant it. He would say, you know, this particular person, what do they need? Where are they struggling? We would focus on that discussion. I think leadership needs to be more about, of course, our relationships with people rather than administrative tasks. Less of a checklist and more a focus on ministry to the people that you're called to minister to. I believe that's more inclusive. When you're focusing on the people, you're going to naturally include all of those that are in your sphere of influence. And whether it's deaf, whether it's disabled, whether it's hearing, it doesn't matter. These are your people. So that's kind of why I attribute that to him. But I think that would be a great discussion, you know, to ask people what they think leaders are. It's not often what we define leadership as. Yeah, I love that. It is this perspective shift. You know, in your head, that's how Christ would lead. But putting it into action and actually doing it, it's challenging. I'm so glad that you found that experience. That changes everything. What do you think about the number of interpreters and hearing people who sign ASL in the church? Do you think that number should be higher? Oh, now you're going to get me going. We have one of the lowest numbers, but I think that isn't the problem. Well, it is part of the problem, <laughs> but the interpreters perhaps should have compensation for what they do and provide to the church, something to compensate them for their time. That is one of the biggest challenges. If we could do that, we would have interpreters for everything. You know what I mean? It feels like they're volunteering their services, meaning that they're going to get tired, you know, that you're going to get sometimes some really novice and awkward uh, students who've taken maybe ASL 101 or ASL 102, not a certified interpreter. Some that I've had, I'm like, wow, you can sign yourself out of a paper bag. But anyways, that happens because it's volunteerism. Yeah. So my mom, you know, again, like I said, she interpreted and I was raised in the gospel. So I know I got all the concepts and I have no excuse because my mom was my interpreter. But I feel like we need a better caliber of interpreters 
if the church would have $350, $400 a month, $500 a month, whatever it was, some budget money set aside to pay interpreters, we would have more interpreters every week. I love that you're suggesting actionable items. I feel like sometimes when we discuss these issues, like you were saying earlier, people just want to talk, talk, talk and not do anything. And I'm always like, well, what are we going to do? But like, you have a plan. (laughs) I love it. I have a lot of plans. I'm all about the plan. Good. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, being a leadership position would maybe be an opportunity for me to implement some of those things. But Mm -hmm. regardless, I'm happy to share the ideas if somebody would just take it and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays in your life, do you think that you might have the opportunity to be in a leadership position like that? You don't know? (laughs) Anybody's guess. Yeah. Right now, probably not. Okay. I feel like, you know, in my area, it's a lot of older people around. Uh, and it's an older neighborhood where I live. And so if you get my drift. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> okay, well, I'm so sad that we're running out of time because this has been incredible. And I just want to talk to you forever and ever and ever. Let's ask one more question. I don't want to make Teddy your interpreter late for her next thing. If you could tell a hearing person, member or not, anything about your life being deaf, what would you express? Like the main takeaway from this conversation. Hmm. If you would have deaf members in your ward or your branch, go up to them. Ask them what's going to make their experience better in the church, how you can make accessible the information and the programs and the events of the church, listen to what they have to say. Simple as that. Wonderful. More plans. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) I just feel like that's what Jesus would do. Mm -hmm. The whole church, it should be about what Jesus would do. Jesus made people feel. He made them be engaged. He pulled them out. He drew them out. And if we would just do that or try to do that, following Jesus' example, within the limitations that were given with the church, but still there's so much more that we could do. If we could put the administrative part of the church aside and think, what would Jesus want us to do? He would want everybody to be fully engaged and fully involved. Yeah, I agree 100%. Jesus is not just, like, he's not a fluffy cloud that just makes everything happy and sweet, you know? Like, Jesus is action because he cares about people. Jesus is reaching out and sometimes being a little radical or a little against the grain, but it's because he cares about people. It's not just sit in your happy little bubble. I love that you highlighted that, and I'm so grateful that we're able to converse with you today. It's such a privilege. I think it's been a great conversation. Thank you. So great to meet you, Teddy. Thank you to you as well. You are welcome. Happy to do it. Well, that's our interview today. Thank you for listening slash reading slash watching. We are grateful for Joseph and Teddy for meeting with us today. Follow us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. And our email, if you'd like to participate or help out, is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman.
Thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. We'll see you next time, friends. <laughs>